so excited to introduce the Bakari Sellers podcast in partnership with The Ringer. We're tackling the issues of the day through interviews with high profile guests and conversations with a rotating panel of the country's best and leading thinkers, influencers and writers. You know, I'm not only an attorney and a former elected official. Sometimes you see me on CNN and I'm a new author of a New York Times bestselling book, My Vanishing Country. But now we're introducing the Bakari Sellers podcast and we're going to cover everything from the 2020 election to sports and culture to the larger movement for racial equality in the United States. We're going to have some of your favorite quarterbacks, some of your favorite politicians, some of your favorite athletes, writers, singers, actors, actresses. The Bakari Sellers podcast will debut on Monday, June 29th. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Sergey, what up, dog? I got a friend of yours here who says we're giving G's a four. Yeah? All right. All right, fuck it. Yeah, it's fine. Yo, another thing. I want to know it wasn't your people dropped that body over on Poteet Street the other night, you know? I'm asking because of some motherfucker with some Greek-ass name and shit. The fuck if he wasn't dumped in front of a house I was using. Did he have hands? Did he have a face? Yes? Then it wasn't us. Uh, Bay, what I realized about episode nine here, Stray Rounds, as it is appropriately titled, brilliance is sometimes no match for incompetence and overconfidence. Mm. Brilliance can be defeated by these two things, because in this episode, I noticed my major takeaway from this is that it's a whole lot of incompetent motherfuckers doing things that is constantly undermining progress. And if that is not so applicable to real life, I don't know what else is. So that was mm. that is what this episode, which was really fast-paced, brilliant, that's what this episode leaves me with. Like, damn, brilliant. Sometimes you just, you can't get a win. You just take yeah. an L's. And incompetence yeah. and overconfidence out here winning constantly. Yeah. The danger of ego and also the fact that there's a certain level of power where incompetence and e- evil are indistinguishable, right? Like you can, if you have a certain level of power, you can be so bad at your job that you affect and fuck over so many people that you might as well be an evil, evil, evil motherfucker because you're having the same type of effect on people's lives. That's why in any organization, be it cops, drugs, at the goddamn TCBY, which by the way, I haven't had in years, which by the way, I'm going to get tomorrow if they're still even around. It's like the Tutti Frutti. It's really great. Um, If you have bad management, bad leadership, or incompetence, it can always sink your goddamn ship. Yeah. Um, What were some of your other major takeaways from Stray Rounds? Stray Rounds, I stay close to the title of the the episode, Stray Rounds. Especially given the way it starts especially given the way it starts. Uh, The whole thing, to me, the whole episode is about unintended consequences. Uh, Unintended consequences of things. Obviously, it starts with the unintended consequences of Bodie making a unilateral decision without consulting his uppers in the Barksdale organization to take uh, territory over on Carrollton. Why are they taking the territory? They don't have any product to sell. 
That is another in unintended consequence of some of the things that happened from season one. All of these consequences, unintended, and the domino effect that leads to a child being murdered, right? You think about everything that had to be set in motion for that child in the beginning to be murdered. All of this happened. The territory starts to fight. Uh, a fight for the territory starts to happen. Bodhi actually loses two of his workers to a rival crew. So those guys now have animus towards Bodhi because uh, Bodhi let them go. Bodhi has animus towards them. They're going to bump on the streets. They're shooting. I love the realism of this gun battle as well because these guys didn't look like Delta Force motherfuckers, no. as Stringer said. No, this was a, uh, uh, right. ooh, ooh, uh, uh. And my favorite is how they shoot and then they like run at the same time. I'm like, what you hitting, man? <laughs> exactly. Well, they hit a child and right. that's why those gun battles in the hood are, are so are so dangerous right you don't you're not you're not having expert marksmen out there some people know what they're doing some people don't unintended consequences um uh <laughs> I got a lot of other things Ziggy getting the gun Ziggy getting the gun which is is an unintended consequence of his entire caper what he he needed some bolt cutters he's in the pawn shop to sell the duck's necklace he sees the gun he grabs the gun. Gonna be a big... That's also a father's away for Yeah, later. that's a huge father's away for later. A big, big, big unintended consequence for that. You see Bunny Colvin, who gets introduced in this. Yes, I'm sure you'll introducing. Get to that. Yep, got that down. Bunny Colvin looks at the street here, and you can hear the, the gears in his mind start to grind over what he's seeing. And I'm thinking that something that happens later on, a decision that he makes about the way things he wants to see things go in the Western District could be an unintended consequence of him having to come to another scene of another dead kid. It seemed like something snapped in mind. Then you got a couple of other things. Obviously, uh, Brother Muzon uh, and kind of the push-pull going back between... Um, uh, Avon and Stringer, even though they don't really know, and just all of the stuff that's going on in there, it's just the, the unintended consequences of things that have been set in motion and how, when a ship isn't tight, you know, how some the, the, the water that leaks out can actually drown some people. Yeah, shit is brewing for sure. Nikki Sabaka in this episode becomes what he hates. He's fully turned. He's fully turned. Fully, fully turned. Yeah. That, you know for sure, was unintended because he had made that completely, completely clear. Yeah, I mean, and wait, he's not just turning into it. it at first, it's a it's a reluctant turn. And then he's like, fuck it, I'm here now. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. You know, he just overnight went from, I don't want to be like one of them. And by them, he meant black people. And mm-hmm. to suddenly... You know, he is, uh, you know, Al Pacino and Scarface. Suddenly, he Tony Montana is like, all right. Yep. So here's a recap of some of the things that happened in this episode. So Bodie's initiative, if you want to call it that, proves to be very costly. You have a nine-year-old kid who is murdered, um, which brings more heat to the street because children being killed in any city is going to bring out political forces. So suddenly, Stringer, on top of the issue of trying to put good product in the towers now has to deal with this other issue of trying to maintain some semblance of the empire of the Barksdale empire as the police are shaking cages, rattling everybody, 
uh, mm-hmm. trying to find out who killed this child. Um, and of course, Bodie gets rid of the gun, but naturally the gun that he puts the bag in winds up on a tanker. And mm-hmm. he was trying to do the right thing as the right thing per getting away with murder, if you will. <laughs> um, and uh, that wound up being one of those all oh, shit kind of moments. Um, Ziggy, who is forever at the mercy of his lack of self-worth, um, he hatches a plan to deliver some stolen Benzes to Double G because he's desperately trying to find his own deal to prove to his father, to Nikki, to whoever, that he too can be a mastermind, even though he is Im- amazingly incompetent at pretty much everything except for computers. And, uh-huh. you know, that, that that is his gift, but he has no outlet to express that gift or to harness that gift or nurture it. And so he has turned to the life of crime that he is ill-suited for. Um, the detail figures out that they are somehow, or they've somehow tipped off the operation uh, that they were on to them. And we learned a little bit more about that operation, about how the Greek gets down with his business, namely a really important part, which is that he has an FBI agent, Agent Kutris, in his back pocket, who proves to be very valuable over the next two episodes. Now, for the purposes of this episode, given that we are seeing the rise here in season two of Russell Stringer, a.k.a. Love the Farmer's Market Bell, (laughs) because we are seeing the rise of this wannabe mastermind, this old fake-ass Steve Jobs, because we are seeing his rise, we decided that we we got to dedicate some appropriate time to taking another deep dive into Stringer Bell, being that he has taken on a different role in the organization, a role in which he gladly embraces. But the role comes with some complications because he wants to make an alliance with a rival, albeit a friendly rival to some degree. I mean, Prop Joe just is on the side, the other side of Baltimore that they don't really deal with. That east side, west side shit goes on in every community. It's either east, west side, north side, south side. Y'all, y'all have all heard it. Um, so he has realized that the only way the Barksdales can survive is if they take Prop Joe's dope because he's got the best dope. He's getting his ship straight through the ports from the Greeks. If he makes uh, an alliance with this guy, that's the only way that they're going to survive. And so he is pulling out all the stops and trying to convince Avon that this is where they need to go. But Avon, even though he's not on camera, you haven't actually seen him on camera in a couple episodes. um, He is this force hanging over Stringer's, you know, over his head. He's breathing on his neck without even being uh, you know, in the city, being even from prison, he's just breathing on his neck as Stringer is trying to figure out the best way that they can go forward uh, as a business. Because you are kind of the president of the Russell Stringer, Stringer Bell fan club uh, van, mm. because mm. you you think it's okay to smash folks' baby mamas and then mm. kill them, get them killed later in prison because you think that's all right, that's acceptable behavior. I'm gonna mm. let you go first on this character deep dive. You you give us, give me some insight into um you know this old fake ass ceo that y'all seem to love so much wow (laughs) wow wow i will i am a fan of russell stringer bell now so one of the reasons why you're seeing russell and prop joe's relationship um go on so swimmingly is because they're like-minded right so look at the difference in the way that stringer 
and and Prop Joe get on as it's sort of compared to the way, you know, you've seen Avon and Prop Joe get on. Avon is a soldier. Avon cares about territory. When the basketball game was happening, Avon threatened Prop Joe's life. If I see you back on this side without a ball, I'm going to light your ass up. That's because Avon is a man about flags and Stringer is a man about banks. There are two ways to run a country. You run it with flags or banks. You run it with borders or finance. Okay. You know, borders is how much territory can you have? Anywhere you can plant your flag, it belongs to you. All right. A second way of doing, of dominating something is saying, whoever's paying me, whoever's paying me, I own. Right. Two different ways of looking at it, two differing ways of world domination, of territory domination. Two separate factions. Uh, Prop Joe and Stringer are of the bank side. They're like, yo, wherever I can get money, I run it. If I can get money on the east side, I'm cool. If I can get money on the west side, I'm cool. The money is what matters. Um, and so when there's no one around to plant flags, bankers going to bank. That's what's going to happen. So what you see is a more stressful season for Stringer Bell in season two, even though the cops have nothing to do with him right now. He is under absolutely zero pressure from law enforcement. There isn't a wire up on Stringer Bell. They're, they don't have any people on rooftops looking at the towers. They don't have any CIs inside of the funeral home. He is really operating free of any type of pressure from law enforcement. The pressure is philosophical for Stringer in this season. The pressure is coming from how he views the street, how Avon views the street. Heavy is the head that wears the crown now that Avon is in jail. Stringer, who wants to build his his empire, uh, their empire, has to do it without any of the tools at his disposal that Avon Barstow has. So you're seeing a different Stringer Bell. You're seeing the Stringer Bell who is uh, willing to, he's always been willing to cut some, some corners, but now he's willing to goddamn rip the construction paper apart to do things in a completely and totally different way. He has to empower some new people like Bodie. He has to build some new subordinates that he can trust. And his thing with Prop Joe is just about the fact that really, if you left it up to Stringer and Prop Joe, they will probably run the entire drug trade in Baltimore. They will probably run uh, from east side to west side. Everybody getting high will be getting high on a package that they had their hand in. But remember, he's dealing with someone that doesn't care about running the entire thing, Avon. Stringer is dealing with someone that cares about running their part of it. This is my territory. This is where I rule. We fought wars to get here. There are no treaties. There are no truces. Um, I, I'm seeing Stringer having to put out more fires. And that's an interesting case for him to be in. He's dealing with what you said earlier, which are guys under him who this is their kind of first time. I, I liken it to being like a sort of like a coach, maybe like Tim Floyd. Everybody watched The Last Dance, right? So. When you're when you're Phil Jackson and you're coaching uh Steve Kerr 
and Tony Kukoc and uh, Dennis Rodman and Scottie Pippen, right? You can kind of give them books and coach them that way, right? You can kind of say, hey, guys, read this book by Deepak Chopra or, 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 or read uh, Farewell to Arms or you can give them a Zen book and coach those guys. They're veterans. They've been in a long time. The next season in Chicago, Tim Floyd took over a team full of guys who weren't veterans, right? Imagine the coaching job he had to do when you literally have to teach some rookie how to tie shoes or how to get on the plane or how to run, how to eat, how to train. And at the same time that you're doing this, uh, the city is on fire. So that's kind of the coaching job. And Stringer's got to be a player coach that he's doing right now. And I got to be honest with you. I think that he's doing a good job. I think that Stringer Bell, considering the fact, think about it. He had some big free agent departures. Some of them departed to that uh, big basketball court in the sky. <laughs> and some departed to, to the jail cell. He lost Weebay. He lost Stinkum. He lost Bird. You know, he lost all of these guys. I think Savino, right? Savino, he yeah. Lost, uh, Savino, he lost everyone that knew everything that did, all new faces. And he still got things kind of cracking, man. It's not, I, I think Stringer Bell is doing a good job, but it's interesting to see that character that was the queen from the first uh, season, the go get a dumb part, be stressed out about decisions. Well, that's that's so funny because, uh, you know, the, the sports analogy, the coaching one, it is, you know, it, it it sounds like you want to make Stringer like coach of the year. You know what I'm saying? Because he <laughs> depleted talent. You know, he had a whole bunch of five stars that left, went on to the league. Now he's got to start all over again um, in terms of maintaining his dominance. You know, it happens like every couple of years with Kentucky. You know, Kentucky's like a, a factory, clearly, for like number one picks, uh, lottery picks, top five players. But, but it seems like every other year or every couple of years, they get like, a whole bunch. I mean, they always get fresh faces, but they get really fresh faces and they kind of got to yeah. rebuild a little. They're still uh -huh. dangerous, but they're just not the Kentucky that we may have. You are where accustomed to, season, to seeing all the uh -huh. time, right? So you you got Stringer as like, he John Calipari right now. Fresh new talent. <laughs> uh -huh. Fresh new talent. Trying to make this work. He's trying to turn Bodie into his uh, his John Wall. He's like, I can, I can get you there. I can get you there if you just listen to me. Mm -hmm. I see, because I'm a journalist by trade, I know how to be objective. And despite my utter disdain for the character of Stringer Bell, I will say this, is that I don't find disagreement in some of the things that you have said. But it is interesting. I do take a special delight in the fact that Stringer, now that he is the man making all of the decisions, he realized that shit ain't as easy as it looks. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> He got a taste of this when Avon was here. And, and to some degree, he was a buffer between Avon and other decisions. But he had other people in charge that he could also delegate to, as you mentioned, Weebay, Savino, Bird, that he could trust. Uh, and even D'Angelo, as much as he didn't like mm, D'Angelo. D'Angelo as well. D'Angelo was somebody that he could trust in the pit. All right. Mm -hmm. I mean, he may not have always made the right decisions, but he knew things were going to go a certain way if he had him in a certain place. And so now... He's got to deal with everything. And some of this are messes that he himself has kind of created, right? With, with some of the decisions that he has also made. Um, you know, because, for example, him trying to put the pressure on Brianna 
to convince Avon to accept the partnership with Prop Joe. And he's got to do that knowing that he had her son murdered. And they're <laughs> right. And so some of this is coming kind of kind of back on him. And it's another theme I saw throughout this this episode is like not only do does incompetence and overconfidence stunt progress and sometimes stunt brilliance, it also allegiance to institutions rather than reality is also very costly. There's a huge parallel, and I, I see David Simon is really good at this at giving us parallel stories that we can look and say, wait, that's like the same thing happening over here. Like Stringer holding on, or even you could say Avon by, I would say by extension more so, him holding on so tightly to those towers and all the sweat equity he put into him, in, into those towers, is leading to him making poor decision making. Frank Sabaka, mm-hmm. same thing. Him, mm. his allegiance to these docks and to what was built in the past, his the sweat equity his family and his brothers, as in his port brothers, have put into those ports are causing him to make irrational decisions, i.e. getting in deeper with the Greeks, becoming mm-hmm. uh, a more prominent uh, exposed figure in this whole drug trade in Baltimore, something I'm sure he never imagined himself doing. Stringer having to create a partnership scenario with a rival because they're trying to hold on to the institution of these towers is creating a lot of chaos and a lot of havoc. Now, the thing about Stringer, though, is even though he uh, is trying to be a learned man, you know, uh, his uh, 100 level economic classes have taught him well. (laughs) And he's trying to apply rich dad, poor dad to the to uh, <laughs> to mm, the drug mm, trade, mm. okay. <laughs> there are some things that the the legitimate business world cannot legitimize when it comes to trapping, and this is to me always the lesson he doesn't understand. And later on, when to me Avon reminds him, lets him know, like, oh, you walking around here, you know, like, yeah, you, know, you Bill Gates up in here. But let me tell you right. the biggest overall lesson your dumb ass forgot. All right. Mm-hmm. And that is to me, his blind spot is that as much as you might want them to operate like a business or you want the drug empire to be a business and even prop Joe is guilty of this too. And that's going to bear out later on. The drug trade is not a business. This is not wall street and this is not C-suites. All right. This is not corner offices. None of that. Like there's going to be outliers to how you have to operate and who you can't trust and how you make deals that if you don't apply some street sense to this world, if you try to kind of leave it out, you're going to wind up, you're going to wind up making yourself and your organization a little bit vulnerable. So in trying to plug all these holes, you see Stringer kind of scrambling to make the most out of what they have left. And you're kind of not used to him being in that position. You're used to seeing him being a little more collected, a little more calm, uh, his go-to kind of gesture is when he puts his hands behind his back and he just kind of mm-hmm. looks down with the old science teacher ass glasses and he's like in lecture mode like why can't y'all get what I'm saying I'm like because right. you're dealing with motherfuckers yeah. that ain't never worked in legitimate business and you try to legitimize some shit that ain't supposed to be legitimate okay mm-hmm. so do it, you do do you think that the drug business is not a business or do you, okay so I think that it is a business but it's a business with different states yeah right so if you are, I don't know nothing, 
I know, first of all, let me tell you guys something real quick. I make analogies, okay? And the analogies I make are based upon my olfactory sort of Southern boy views and observations of the world. Before I say this, I've never worked at Bear Stearns or at Citibank. So when you when I say this, the you guys who are junior analysts over at Citi, you can come in my mentions if you want and go, that's not how that works. But I'm saying I've never worked there. But I would imagine that if you are a CEO at Citi and you make a wrong decision, that they don't blow your fucking head off. So I would imagine that that's not the stakes. So I think that what I'm saying is that as far as Stringer is that he he wants he he is like Avon in the fact that he's trying to force uh, a square peg in a round hole, like you said, but he's trying to take legitimate tactics and put it into an illegitimate business where the stakes are different, where you lose your life, where other people lose their lives. You know what I mean? So it is a business, but just a different one, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would say that. It's kind of, it, it, it relates to how we view ourselves as a country. We view ourselves as a pure democracy, but we know that's not true. Not we true. have bits and pieces of democracy. Um, just like we view ourselves as a purely capital, capitalistic system, we're not purely capitalistic. We're social democratic. We're social capitalists, right? Because mm. we wear, we change that hat whenever it's convenient. You know, billionaires really quick to tell everybody yep, yep. to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. But when shit go bad, they want a handout. So it's like, right. that's that's kind of um, how I see uh, this drug trade that they've depicted here in The Wire. It's like, they want to be a legitimate business. They want everything to be legit, but you can't be le- legit when violence and murder is unfortunately the cost of doing business. Prop Joe and Russell uh, Stringer Bell, imagine a world that's not possible. Imagine a world of us just selling drugs and, you know, we just make a business transaction and nobody gets hurt because we don't because they don't want heat from the police. That's not the way the shit works. It'll never right. work that way because intrinsically right. it can't. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I get it that he does a lot of things to try to bring to try to eliminate, I should say, unnecessary forced errors. Understand that as he should as a self-appointed CEO. Um, I get it. Um, that's what he called himself when he was trying to holler at, at everybody. He was like, this is why CEOs get paid the big bucks. It's because when I y'all fuck up, it's my ass on Okay, Stringer. Calm that's down. That's true though. Calm down. Well, right. you well, look, what he was telling them was that they made his job harder right now because now he's got to figure it out. Y'all out there fucking up. By the way, the decision of Bodie to... I, I, was one of my favorite scenes when they throw the guns off the bridge and they land in the boat on top of the barge. I'm like, Jesus, man. If these aren't the biggest group of fuck-ups I have <laughs> ever seen before hey man, in my life. That's something... That is... That is... That is karma or God or whatever higher power you believe in deciding like, sorry, man, you just going to have to eventually take this L, all right? It may not be right in this moment, but this is the consequence of some of the things that you've done. Another thing I want to say quickly about Stringer, as it relates to Avon, seeing, especially when we get to season three and shit really goes down in their relationship, but this is reminding me of when you've been in a long relationships and a long relationship and the beginning of a breakup and I'm looking at prop Joe's role and how he's, he's kind of 
the other side woman. chicken Russell right now, Stringer mm-hmm. Bell. He is. I mean, he's telling him all the stuff that he wants to hear. He's like, mm, it's too bad you with your old lady because it's pretty good yeah. over here. You know, yeah. you know, I know she ain't treating you right and, you know, let you out the house all fine and ain't taking you nowhere. Like, I mm-hmm. know how it is. See, I would treat you so much better. And w- the evolution of their relationship, uh, Stringer and Avon, is that it comes to a point, and this is kind of the beginning sparks of this, where all they have is what they used to be. All they have mm-hmm. is the old history. That's it. Right. And they don't have anything else really in common anymore because they're living two separate lives. Now, I don't think Avon being in prison, I think it heightened that, that uh, you know, philosophical difference you talked about. But if even if Avon is free, I think they still eventually get to this tension point anyway. See, I disagree. Really? Like, yeah, I do. I think, I think prison is what I like to call the trip to Brazil for Avon. Because I know a lot of brothers that was happy in their relationships in the 90s and the 2000s, and then they took a fellas trip to Brazil, and, and they got back. Say. Yeah, and they got back. It's like when and your I, girl I, goes to NBA All-Star Weekend, and it's just different. Oh, <laughs> hey, dummies. Hey, when your girl says that she's like, listen, don't control your woman. I'm not saying that. But when your girl says, hey, uh, me and some of my uh, my sorority sisters from uh, FAMU are going to NBA All-Star Game in Vegas. It's just going to be the four of us for a couple of days. Baby, I'll see you back. You know, don't be the guy that says you can't go. Just be get heavy on the text messages. Because <laughs> like, I'm saying, get, just, get it, just get heavy on the text messages. Because she about to see a world that doesn't exist where you guys live Back in Orlando. I'm just saying that. Get heavy on the text messages. Just be prepared to know game. the streets have her now. The streets just, have yes. The streets that have is a now. perfect corollary. <laughs> that is the trip to Brazil for women. The NBA All-Star Game weekend with your sisters from Delta Sigma Theta. You go up there. Or like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's that's the trip. Um, but yeah, you're right. And but I But what I think, though, is... So, when... Two things happened when Avon went to jail. Number one, Avon, for the first time that we saw, felt a sense of loss, right? So all Avon wanted to do, because he had lost some of the territory he had had, he had lost some of the strength that he had had. These are things that define Avon Barstale, right? And he felt them taken away. They took away his freedom. They took away his power. He tried to talk to a guy, and the guy didn't even talk to him. Remember the 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 the, uh, the, uh, the prison guard? Yes. Yep. Remember, a- Avon yep. goes, pardon me? Or excuse me, like like he's not used to this, right? So when Avon comes back, he wants his power back. But what he really wants more than anything is he wants Avon Barstale back. In order to get that, he's got to get back some of the things that he lost. He's got to get himself back. Um, Stringer is actually the opposite. He found some parts of himself that he wasn't able to explore when Avon was around. He found some parts, some new things happened. Okay, well, I can run this. I could do this. He probably thought that he could. As, by, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be honest with you. Now that I think about it, my ideas might be actually better than Avon's ideas. You know, he believed in Avon's ability to run things from the number one spot for a long time. Um, and he had his faith in that. Now he's seeing that there's some cracks even in that. We could be making more money. 
we could be seeing less bodies. And so I personally think that what you might have seen over the course of something was Stringer go legit and get out. But I don't ever think that if if Avon hadn't been absent for a time or maybe one of them goes to jail, maybe one of them gets killed, I don't think you would have seen Stringer challenge Avon without Avon's prison sentence. I really don't think so. I think those roles were too ingrained and he wouldn't have seen any reason to do so uh, if things kept running the way they were supposed to. You know, it, the the only parallel I can sort of think of, um, but I don't I don't think it was the division was this sharp. But it reminds me to some degree a little bit of Tommy and Ghost in power. You know, okay. yeah, I mean Tommy was content. I mean he he wanted to retire, and I put that in air quotes. A, a drug dealer, like this was his life works, and I think you you brought this up, um, in a previous podcast, like when we were talking about money making Mitch, and paying mm-hmm. full versus Wood Harris's character in it that they um they had two different ideas about how this thing was going to end. For Stringer, this ends with him in an office downtown running a company and being completely legitimate. Avon doesn't necessarily want to die on the street. Like I don't think he's one of those that like I'm a he ain't like Bodie. Bodie's like fuck it if I go out I'm going go out. if I go out violently that's just what it is. I don't think Avon's like that, but he wants to just in his mind, he want to bang, you know, ball till he fall, just keep banging mm-hmm. till to the end. And I'm like, he hasn't thought about what the end looks like. You know, there is right. no the end. This this can only end one way, you know. Right. Um, but I, I mean, I, I think uh, I may have noticed noted this or you did. But when uh, I think it was the end of season one, when. It ends uh, obviously with Avon being taken to to, to jail. Uh, Stringer looks kind of happy with that. I mean, happy may not be the word, but he looks like this ain't so bad. Like, hmm. there's an upside here. That's how he's looking. Mm. And, and I think he those feelings of wanting to see if he could run this, not run it himself, but just run it his way. He wanted to know, um, did my two credit macroeconomics class teach me enough so that I can run this multi-million dollar empire drug empire he wanted to try it out like at some point you want to come off the bench and and prove that you are all-star and that's the mode that we catch Stringer the businessman in (laughs) Jamel Hill enemy of higher education. You can't even improve yourself. <laughs> no, I'm not. Damn. I'm an enemy of elitism. And you, sir, with uh, you, Stringer Bell, um, are not about to sit up here and try to act like you so much better than everybody because, you're pl- because your slacks got pleats in them. Not going to happen. By the way, I did notice the pleated slacks. See what I'm saying? Not on my watch, sir. I did, not on I, my I watch. I did notice in this episode the pleated slacks. The pleated slacks are saying something. Like you and your... Like t- that- that's saying a lot. <laughs> you and your Tom Joyner crew sweaters you know, your little summer Ooh. sweaters. Nah, you ain't you ain't about to be up here lecturing people about how much smarter you are than them and, and you the CEO and all that. Oh, okay. All right. Gotta, With your Frankie Beverly and May's attire. I, I see say, you. We gotta we gotta figure out the Tom Joyner Cruise, man. <laughs> we gotta figure out COVID so the cruises can get back popping, man. Have they like we gotta figure them out. Cause I've never been on one. Have you ever been on I've one? I've never been on one. I've been to a Frankie Beverly and May's concert, which by the way, 
top five concert I've ever been to, and you and somebody from Louisiana. I feel like I feel like yeah. you should agree to this. Um, but I, I feel like that that two hour window is a window into what it constantly looks like on the Tom Joyner cruise. <laughs> if you go to a Frankie Beverly and Mays concert, you basically have been to been on a Tom Joyner cruise. This is this is just my feeling. Um, any last words on Stringer? Or are you ready to move on? I'm ready to move on, man. All I'm saying is, Stringer, keep doing your best, man. Keep, keep, keep doing your best, brother. There's some people out here who 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 love and care for you. I know you, you get beat up a lot on this podcast. There's some people out here that, that really respect your contribution, Stringer. So you keep on keeping on, brother. Yeah, Mr. CEO right there. <laughs> uh, you dropped this before, but I'll just, uh, I think it bears mentioning. Um, two extremely important introductions happened in this episode. We got Buddy Colvin. Uh, and Brother Muzone. Mm. And again, The Wire is just not known for dramatics and the fact that the last scene, you have the camera panning right in. It just leads to you understanding like this brother is here about business and something's important is about to happen with him. From The Ringer, I'm Tyler R. Times. When I spoke to NFL star Cam Newton in January, his mindset was clear. I want my whole career to be in Charlotte. Cam won't be getting that wish. He was released by the Carolina Panthers in March. Cam is a complex figure, and my interest in him goes far beyond his exuberant smile and transcendent style of play. Cam broke the glass ceiling in American athletics, ascending to a place in the sport that few black quarterbacks have ever reached, making his fall that much more dramatic. Over the past year, I've traveled the country speaking to coaches and teammates, friends and family, reporters, and even briefly to the man himself, trying to unravel the enigma that is Cam Newton. I uncover contradictions at every turn. How can the hardest worker on the team be depicted as a bad leader? And how can a franchise icon with the NFL MVP and Super Bowl appearance on his resume be so abruptly cast aside? The Ringer NFL Show presents... Cam Chronicles. The series premieres Monday, July 13th. As for best scenes, uh, there's one overwhelming candidate to me for the best scenes in this episode. Gotta be McNulty, man. Gotta be McNulty. McNulty. McNulty with the with the with the prostitutes. Yes, McNulty in the brothel. Mr. Cromwell. Decisions, decisions. Would it be wrong to take two? Attaboy. McNulty certainly has his comedic moments. But the this entire episode, what I noticed is that McNulty's only purpose is comic relief. And I don't think you mm. ever see that in any of the episodes with him in The Wire. Like, he's usually, he'll have some witty one-liners, some funny things he does when he's drunk. Him and Bunk will go back and forth. And, you know, there'll be some stuff there. But McNulty, all he does is make you laugh in this whole episode, which is very, yep. very different from him. And my favorite line is when... <laughs> Is when he said, I was outnumbered. It was two on one. <laughs> it's true. Look, it was hilarious when McNulty was trying to figure out his accent or figure out what part he was going to play. Crikey. I was looking to get a little hanky-panky. <laughs> and this one bloke gave me this number to call when I got across the pond. 
<laughs> Work on it, son. Work on it. Or also when he called the first time and he was trying to, I'm a traveling salesman. I'm not from around here. It was so terrible. He was doing such a terrible job to be the master detective that he is. And it was cool to see Rhonda and Kima call him out. Obviously, McNulty is trying, they're trying to find a way to get um, into the brothel and get him picked up as a client. And it's not easy. These women are cunning. They've been doing this for a long time. They can smell the bullshit through the phone. I love the the, the scene with the uh, inside the brothel with, with him and the prostitutes just because what are you going to do, man? Like, the, the women descended on him so quickly. <laughs> like, I, like, it's like, was, what, is, was, what, what, what are you going to do? He like, was what helpless, you, you know? right? He's like, he was can, helpless. Come on. What can he do? You know, that threesome was like, happening whether he wanted it to or not. Yeah, it was like it was a situation to really, I, really, it's a situation to where I felt bad for McNulty. I felt like maybe they were aggressive with him. They took advantage with, of him. If we have those women's Twitter accounts, that maybe we should pull them up and bring them in front of the congregation and 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 Tell and, them and about make their sure that they behavior. Yeah, we want we want to know that their behavior has changed. But no, like literally, I see that, and I don't want to say that it, it resonates with me. But I'm thinking if you're in that situation. It takes a Herculean effort. <laughs> like, you got to be like, like, you know, no, stop. Unhand me. Unhand and, he, and like, you know, and, he, and he's trying, but they working. And this is what they do. And also, it's just it's a funny scene because they're working so fast. They are. Because they're not trying to be in there all night. They got to get to the point and get to the next Efficiency one. It's just a perfect storm. Must rain. Yes. He was, he was, that's another unintended. Co- I actually have that. Uh, McNulty getting laid, LOL. That's another unintended <laughs> consequence of things that were well, happening in the episode. What I didn't notice about this scene, and I actually had to rewind it a couple of times, much like you said, they're trying to get to the point right away. And he was like, trying to get them to like, can't you, we just talk for a second or whatever. And they're like, yeah. no, no, ain't no talking. So, right. One of the ladies aggressively starts aggressively. Giving, giving him a hand job. And I was like, oh, right. oh I did not like, realize it was that aggressive. Aggressively. Like, oh, oh, okay. And at that point, and at that point, I just gotta be honest with you guys. The toothpaste isn't going back in the tube. You got you're brushing your There's teeth. So after much that. I can do with that analogy. I'm just gonna let it hang on out there. <laughs> gonna let it hang on out there, man. That's all you um I have other favorite scenes. Go ahead. I like the Bodie interrogation scene. Bodie's growing up. I don't know what you're talking about. No, you fucked up. We even got your prints on one of the guns. We even got that. Which one? That's you right there. Lawyer. He's learning. <laughs> He's learning. Obviously, the scene that, it, that kicks the episode off where the, the shootout um, is an incredibly dramatic scene. Uh, I remember even the first time I saw that and I saw that mother um, and her two kids and I'm like, what's going to happen here? Did you already you know, get the sense that something bad was going to happen? It felt it felt mm-hmm. wrong. Uh, it felt weird. Like, she's got her two kids. She's doing it. It's a, just another day. And even something else about that scene that's powerful is that, you know, there's a procedure for her to know when this is ju- when shit is jumping bad, she puts one kid into the tub uh, to make sure that they're protected, and she goes up and she says to uh, her son, who's already passed away. By the time she gets up there, she says, "Hey, the drama's over now. You got to go to school." I'm thinking, damn. 
you, you know what I mean? I'm like, wow. Like, shoot out right in front of your block, bullets flying everywhere. But guess what? Life don't stop. You got to go to school. And unfortunately, the kid is dead. There's just so much. It says so much about the world that people are living in uh, in West Baltimore, that one scene, and how they are swept up in the middle of something that doesn't benefit them, doesn't have anything to do with them, and really just takes from them every single day. Great scene. Navigating around uh, violence, which seems in itself, um, that just... It's so startling and stark. And I, I have to say, it, it really, it unfortunately brought back um, some childhood memories for me because I remember very distinctly when I was uh, growing up in Detroit and um, we lived on the west side and uh, there was a shootout like on our lawn, on our, uh, mm. between um, two dudes and me and my mother, we had to lay on the floor um, and Damn. just kind of wait for it to pass. Uh, we, obviously we, didn't move the next day or anything. The next day it was back to business as usual. Like, all right, got to go to school. My mom had to go and do whatever she had to do. Uh, that's how it is, is that it seems so normal to you because you're used to navigating around it that you cannot believe um, in hindsight, like, wow, that really used to be my life. And so when I saw that scene the first time, I immediately thought of having to go through something, you know, similar, but I was fortunate because a bullet didn't come through, um, you know, through my window. Right. It's crazy. Um, and also another scene that is also a great scene for this and a follow away from later is I like the scene where Ziggy attacks Nikki um, outside of the bar. You know, we start to see Zig unravel. He's coming apart at the seams. He's trying to do everything to sort of maintain uh, who he thinks he is or to establish more so who he thinks he is. And he put together a caper that wasn't bad. On the yeah, face like, of it, it really seemed workable, right? It's yeah, not it's, one of his worst ideas, you know? Yeah, Ziggy put together a caper that was, that, 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 it, it worked. He's smart. Like, you know, earlier in this season, I called Ziggy Sabaka one note, and you said he was more tragic. And I think I agree with you now. I think that, you know, when you look at Ziggy, he's not one note as much as I thought he was. He only gets a chance to show one note. There might be more instruments or more things that he's capable of playing, but for some reason, he's only able to muster one note because the little caper that he puts together and all of that, if he was anybody else, if he was Nikki, that had been looked at as brilliant. Mm. But because it comes from him, because of the reputation he's made for himself and because of some of the ways he the ways he acts out, he's only ever able to really show one part of who he is, and people really only accept one part of who he is. Uh so yeah, that 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 scene, and when he attacks Nikki outside the bar, Nikki's just walking into the bar, Ziggy's drunk, duck has died. Um, and he attacks him. That's just him doing what he always does, just emoting. He sees his cousin as every single thing that he would want to be, every way that he would want to be regarded, uh, his cousin is that. And while he's tried to negotiate that with his cousin, he can't anymore, so he just attacks it. I thought it was a great scene. Yeah, no, it was it was one of those kind of subtle moments that The Wire is so good at that speaks volumes, that you know the motivation behind his frustration, you know where it's coming from, and you also know that it's reaching a boiling point, which is very mm-hmm. uh, important to know in this. Um, one of the other scenes I liked, I mentioned it a little bit earlier is when Stringer is talking to Brianna, trying to get her 
to mm. get Avon aboard. And when she says, as long as them towers are still standing, I am too. It just really brought home this incredible allegiance to something that's so, um, that's something that's so inevitable to fall. Something that even though it's a building, it is something that is not supposed to necessarily stand the test of time. But for the Barksdales, every sacrifice that has been made, every life lost is in those towers. Right. And so they have to stand and protect it. It reminded me of how Cersei was with the Red Keep. That's what it reminded mm. me is that she's like, fuck it, I'm going to die here. This is this is it. This is where I'm making my final stand. However, life is supposed to turn out. You know, Brianna feels like, especially with her son being gone and her referencing the guilt that she's carrying and the look on Stringer's face, because that was the first time in talking to her where I saw a small glimpse of he's not sorry, but I saw, saw uh, a small glimpse of maybe sympathy because before yeah. he was faking it. Like when he was bringing over, uh, when he went over to visit, um, you know, Donetta as a whole family is there and they're mourning D'Angelo. And he just came off like what he is, which is a huge asshole. Cause he's like, yeah, yeah. So bad that that dude is gone. Yeah. Like he was just going through the motions. But with this time, uh, it was a little different because she's carrying that. She thinks it's her fault and that she should have saw it coming. And he's like, it It sort of registers to him like, damn, she had nothing to do with this and there's nothing she could have done. But at the same time, it's got to be what it's got to be in order for business to keep going. And, yeah. you know, he knows that if keeping those towers going and keeping the business going means sacrificing her son as warped as Brianna is. That is a choice she never would have made. She never would have sacrificed D'Angelo for for the family or for the game. And so it's it's it was a very telling um you know scene to me. Uh, also, getting back to McNulty, the funny thing was is he's trying to imitate a British accent he already has. That's what made that, Love like, that. like he's British, so. He's got to make it. He's got to make fun of his own accent. <laughs> I love that in shows where people get to be who they really are for like one little second. They got to pretend like I'm listening to him because like when I'm watching it, I'm thinking he's really got a British accent. How is he going to pretend that he's got a bad British accent? Right. Yeah. So it, it was dope. You know what? I, I do love that scene. It it makes me. That scene always makes me wonder what the disconnect with D'Angelo was. And, and I'll tell you, like. Stringer loves Avon. He clearly loves Brianna, right? They all grew up together. There must have been really something that went on to where she has a son and he doesn't really feel any of... He always showed nothing but very few times did he show any love for D'Angelo. Well, he really had nothing but disdain for him. I, I, I think I know where it comes from because I can be this way with people too, is that I can't tolerate stupid. Right. And mm. and D'Angelo was not I would not say he's a stupid person. I don't think he was stupid at all. Yeah. No. But once he started making mistakes, it, it's like Stringer couldn't get over the fact that he compromised their business by right. killing uh, William Gant in the beginning. And even though okay. it just it seemed. I don't know, based on the descriptions that we were able to learn, you know, through the episodes, it seemed like D'Angelo really didn't have a choice. So. He was making these constant errors that I think Stringer was just slowly losing respect for him. 
And because mm-hmm. it was com- it was a combination of him thinking that D'Angelo wasn't that smart and that he right. was a, he was kind of a fuck up and that he also couldn't do anything about him because he was, you know, Avon's uh, nephew. Yeah. Right. Right. So but he felt a little ham. She felt he felt uh, it, there's nothing will get. <laughs> That's a fantastic point. Nothing will get you more frustrated than being involuntarily chained to ignorance. Like, like nothing. That's a that's a TED talk right there. Like nothing will like anybody that's been in an office anywhere. If you get involuntarily chained to ignorance, you can't do nothing but work with this motherfucker, and they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Nothing is worse in a job situation than yeah. that. Yeah. Um. So let's move on to what age the best Sweet. and. It, it was a few things I thought that aged the best. Um, mm-hmm. We've talked about the scene repeatedly so far, but unfortunately, collateral damage in the drug game ages quite well. And the nine-year-olds uh, being murdered, just the continuous cycle of violence is unfortunately a a theme and a trend and a, conti- a lasting trend in this country. So that was just, you know... Um, that was just really sad uh, and unfortunate. And it, it was one of those subtle deaths that like brought home the point that this is not just about territory or whatever. These, these are, these are things that are costing people lives and, and terrorizing them in their own way. What also, and I think that, that Simon did this on purpose to drive home the callousness of it and the business as usual, usual nature of it. Stringer was only concerned about business. Bodie was only trying to evade responsibility. At no point did either one of them give a fuck that a nine-year-old got killed. Neither one. They were just like, oh, but no, but, you know, Stringer's pissed because business is going to be momentarily stunted even more than it already is. And Bodie is just trying to maintain his position as becoming Stringer's trusted confidant by trying to convince him that he did everything that Stringer said in order to not bring back the heat on them and also trying to atone for that even happening in the first place and as in happening, not the nine-year-old being murdered, but as bringing on an unnecessary street war for no damn reason. Mm-hmm. So Also, also well. besides Colvin, the police treated very, very business as usual. Like the first thing Rawls really says to Colvin is, you know, I, I remember when a nine-year-old catching a bullet would, you know, get, get you down here quicker than like what, whatever. Like he, they, they've seen this before and I've, Colvin steps back and looks at it in a in, in a certain way, but the mayor has to do his 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 song and dance. The police commissioner the the has to do his song and dance. But this is what they have to do. But no one seems to be genuinely affected by the loss of innocent life by the elementary school kid that that died. No, that's yeah for for sure. Yeah. Anything else aged the best for you? Uh, well, what aged the best for me was a lack of self control by men. Jimmy Minolti in uh in with the prostitute. <laughs> you know, the, the lack of self-control. Uh it's it, it, you know what you know how that's gonna age? Please, yeah, I'll tell you how that's gonna age. You know that little infinity sign that you can make? Yeah. That's how that's gonna age. We <laughs> could do this show. <laughs> our it, like our our grandkids could do this show, and that's gonna age well. Uh <laughs> you know, just gotta you gotta build up your tolerance to not do fuck shit. Every day you don't do fuck shit. It gets easier not to do fuck shit, but that's a thing. Um, yeah. So th- that age, that was something that I thought aged pretty well. I was like, you know, that's something that you could that that would have been in in nineteen eighty that works, in nineteen seventy that works, in nineteen sixty that works. Today it works. It's gonna work twenty years from now. So yeah. Um. Also, uh, 
I, I think man purses actually age well. McNulty's at man purse? Maybe not that type of man purse, but mm-hmm. I've seen LeBron with one. I've seen Russell Westbrook with one. A lot of NBA players have like man purses. I feel like man purses kind of made a come up. They go and then they 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 go in and out. Man purses do. Like McNulty was in the in the prostitution thing. Hey in the brothel. No, they go in and out. So I remember in my college years, which was around that time, I used to have the European messenger bag. You okay. Know what I mean? All right. It was like across, you know, I had to, I, I had to, I had a, I had got it from the gap. I had a black and silver joint, the European messenger bag. And then all of a sudden, one day, they were like, nah. And then the backpack, you started seeing them again. The backpack came back. Then, though, in maybe like six years ago, there was a double whammy of the man purse and the fanny pack that came back at the same time. Because you can't really be high fashion with the messenger bag cross strap because it hides your clothes. So like you can't be high fashion if if the stuff is hiding your clothes. You need something that goes along with it and doesn't overpower the outfit. So you put the fanny pack on or you got the little man purse that you can carry and it doesn't take away from or the clutch. I've seen guys that got the little clutches. You know, hey man, do your thing. It's all gravy. Do your thing, Westbrook. I like it. <laughs> the clutch. So who mm-hmm. knew uh, that that the man purse would be kind of here to stay? It's not just a European thing. It's a lot of dudes that do it. Um, and I would rather, honestly, I'd rather you all invest in that or the uh, across the shoulder, um, you know, that thing you were talking about. Because when guys whoop out a wallet that looks like it could be a murder weapon, you know, because it, it looked like you would suffer from blunt force trauma if they hit you with their wallet because it's got everything. Their mortgage papers, you know, the diploma, about twenty two. Like, I used to have that. I used to have a wallet. I, I used to have a wallet that was so. I got a different one now. I got a wallet with a little man purse. You want to see it? <laughs> you got a. You got look, the combo. Look, 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 look. So this is the wallet, right? Okay. Change like so people can't see my shit. This is the wallet, right? Right. But look, but look what I got. I got a little. A zippity zip zog. Look at that. So I got a, I got a little, look, I got a little, uh, ain't no money in here. Broke, broke. <laughs> um, uh, I got a little, I can zip it. I zip it like this. So, you know, boom. And then I got, I got all of my cards and stuff like that, like right here. And I got, you know what I'm saying? You feel me? <laughs> I feel like that is very economical, very efficient, man. Like you got to get that combo. You're right. Like you can't just have yeah. like the wallet. You got to have both. So that aged well. In terms of what didn't age well, um, kind of been a persistent thing, but they brought up the juxtaposition of these two um, fake wars, the war on drugs and the war on terror. Uh, mm-hmm. Neither one of those aged really well. And right. if you want to bring the war on terror, particularly to present day, it is why a lot of these police forces are militarized is because of the alleged war on terror. And yep, so yep. they have been outfitted, these police forces, as if they we about to be in World War Z, um, giving uh, departments weaponry and tanks and things that do not belong. So that aged terribly. Um, anything stick out to you in terms of what age the worst? Uh, just um, <laughs> Landsman was talking about Bodie. 
and uh, you know the fact that they had Bodie's name uh, as being one of the names that was on the street. And Lanceman said, "Why isn't Bodie in an interrogation room, having us throw him around all around the interrogation room right Ooh. now?" Police brutality does not age well. Did not. Never did, age but like especially well. now. Especially now. Uh, yeah, that talk from Landsman just it kind of. And we're going to see more instances of police brutality in The Wire, and we're going to talk more extensively about it. But um, interestingly enough, it's never as bad as it was in season one ever again. Not really. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And they never, and I'll say this, The Wire, and this is why something we discussed earlier um, in breaking down the season, you know, relating The Wire to all the things that are happening with the climate now and particularly with police brutality the the wire doesn't glorify police brutality. It shows right. it to you as a window into why this system is fucked up. That's right. always the vein is showing that like for the police in the wire, this is normal. Like this is what they do. And it's through showing how normal it is and how accepted and how expected it is that David Simon is showing how fucked up it is. So it's like, it's right. never a thing where you're sitting there rooting for the cops to whoop somebody's ass. It's just, it's always um, done in a vein to to bring about maximum effect of you being horrified by what they consider to be a common practice. Sure, um, sure, absolutely. Yeah, I'm really shocked though because you you're usually on this uh, van because you're you're a fashion maven as we saw from your man purse. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I thought for sure you would point out white Mike uh, wearing the fat farm, man. I thought for sure uh, you were gonna put that on there. But see, here's the thing though: it, it's like I. I, I I notice that now, but I almost don't notice it anymore. Cause even Cheese, like when like like when Cheese had his all when Cheese has all of his stuff on when they're wearing it, I almost don't see it anymore because when I watch the show, I'm back in there. White Mike though had on a full green. I mean, he was getting it. Mike White was my White Mike was doing his thing. I'm not gonna lie, I can't even say that that age the worst. Ooh, okay. I will pull that shit off right now, especially on like St. Patrick's Day. You know, my white Mike had the full green fat farm joint. You know, so so yeah, but like now when I, I can't even say that that stuff, we we could do that every we could do that every, every show. Yeah, because it's like every show they got G unit clothes on. <laughs> they got they got South Pole on. They got uh, is it in Nietzsche or Y and C? I never know how to pronounce it, which is I why I don't say. I never knew it. it. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you know, you know what I haven't seen? You know, what I haven't seen. Maybe I did. Have we seen any Sean John on the wire? I think from Ooh. Stringer. We did see. Did we, I think we did see. Did we did see yeah, him? in the okay. first. He wore it up. He had the strong, the Sean John baby blue joint. And I talked about right, it. Right, because he hadn't graduated yet to his Tom Joyner fit. Like he hadn't made that right. transition yet. So I got it. All right. Um, a right. lot of huge filed this away for later moments in this. You mentioned one, Ziggy buying the gun after pawning the diamond necklace for the duck. That is a huge filed this away. Uh for a later moment. Um, also, I had Valchek going ballistic on Burrell, Rawls, Perlman, Daniels. About uh, yep, not, I have that too. Yeah, yep. about not targeting Sabaka, vowing revenge. Uh, Valchek, babe, he's he's so unlikable. Like, just so unlikable. Um, what were the other ones that stuck out for you? Uh, Bunny Colvin's reaction to the crime scene and how he starts to look around, the feeling of hopelessness that he has. It seems like he's lost faith in what it is that they're doing. That's a huge father's way for a later moment. Um, I have Ziggy with the gun. I even have Ziggy's caper. Ziggy's caper itself is a gigantic father's way for a later moment. Huge. 
and it's going to pay itself off uh, almost immediately, instantaneously in the next episode. Um, and of course, the arrival of Brother Muzon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is a gigantic father's away from Eddie Murphy. Uh, and I would say, too, along um, with what you said about Ziggy, the caper is, but I also think. A, hu- a father's away for a later moment is when Double G, and I understand why he told him this, um, is that uh, when he refused to give him money for quote unquote expenses, is that that becomes a father's away for a later moment because that triggers a series of events. Uh, the Bunny Coven's attitude, um, which it, it was illuminating to see this because I didn't remember that moment where we, where bunny was introduced. I just, kept, I didn't even, I didn't even remember that it happened there, nor did I, of course, I didn't remember, uh, that he, from the beginning kind of establishes that he's already fed the fuck up. Like he, mm-hmm. that, that, that there's some disillusionment that's already there. Didn't remember that. And that's a huge file us away foreshadowing moment. However you want to do it. Also stringers continual, um, alliance with prop Joe is a huge file this away because Gigantic. it leads to further cooperations. Keyword being cooperation. <laughs> that happens. Um, you know, and uh, Avon hiring Brother Who's on to assist Stringer with muscle. And then Stringer suggesting to Prop Joe that they take out Brother Who's on. Like that whole dynamic of Stringer, Brother Who's on, Avon, that becomes a huge explosive uh, kind of um, element for um, uh, for the next season. Also, Sergey, aka Boris's phone usage. Gotta file that away. My man be on his phone, mad reckless, and that is pretty big. Um, yeah. uh, of course, got a little trivia for you, Van. Let's go. Ooh. Yes. Ooh, let's do. It. I love it when you give me the trivia. Ooh, it just it just yeah, excites every, me. More. Every, I'll, that's the. I'll, I live for trivia. Let's do it. Okay, so this is about um, the first bit of trivia is about whether or not you recognize this face, or did you did it this completely um, blow past you? So remember when Bunk Kima they're all at the door of the of the hotel room, bust in to help quote unquote McNulty, right? The uh, Bunk says to this young officer who wants to use a battering ram in a hotel. He's like, hey, ease, ease up. Oh, not a young officer. Exactly. You recognize oh, who that was. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, can't, I, was, I can't remember his name, but this dude. Walker. Walker, that's his name. Walker yeah. is every bit the asshole that books on. Right. This yeah. is uh, uh, definitely, I mean, you can put that as a father's away for later because that that dude becomes a prominent figure in season four. Yes. And I totally forgot this scene existed. And I did not realize I that was the same didn't guy. Real, I thought he, once again, great show. I thought he materialized out of thin air yep. in season four. Did. When I saw it, I was like, oh shit, there's Walker right there. Yep. Walker, right. but he, he is on the list of people in the wire that you pray something awful happens to. Mm. <laughs> he is mm-hmm. despicable. Terrible. He's a horrible person. Um, so when Bunny Colvin, uh, when we get introduced to him, notice that he has a confidant there with him, another police officer, a sidekick, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Mello. That is the real Jay Landsman. Oh! That's the real one. I love trivia. That's fantastic. Yep. That, so, And he also... He did audition to be Jay Lansman, but 
he wasn't what they kind of pictured. They pictured somebody more like Delaney Walker, who actually plays Jay Lansman. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think that was kind of their kind way of saying they kind of pictured a heavyset kind of guy, <laughs> mm. <laughs> right? Who was, you know, a little, a little worse for wear and looked very sort of police incompetent. And unfortunately, right. the, the real Lansman didn't look that incompetent. So right. there is your trivia, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Mm. Uh, the moment of truth. Uh, Van. Um, and by the way, people, the only reason why I'm not going through a Stringer Bell fuckboy moment is because I already went through it when we broke down Stringer Bell. <laughs> All right. Mm-hmm. Him trying to get Brianna to go and talk to Avon, knowing he'd have murdered her son. What an asshole. <laughs> Let <laughs> him live. The, what an asshole. <laughs> so that's why I didn't give you that as a separate. But uh, the moment of truth, Van, who won the episode? I got Bodie. You got Bodie, despite the fact that it was his rivalry that led to not just a murder, but just heat on the unnecessary heat on the organization. I know, but this is a Bodie episode to me. It's a Bodie episode to me because I think Bodie Bodie shows the most parts of his personality in this episode than any other time I've seen it. He shows the fierce soldier Bodie, then he shows the fuck up Bodie, then he shows a completely confident and with it, he shows both what he learned and what he still needs to learn in this particular episode. And it's the most well-rounded I think we've ever seen the character in terms of, I mean, we're going to see more from him very shortly. It's the most well-rounded we've seen the character. He's fierce and he's learning He's making mistakes. We know exactly where Bodie Brodus is in his life from watching him in this episode. Like where he still needs to grow, where he's grown from. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed seeing so that. It's my one of my favorite characters too. of this episode is Prop Joe. Um, oh, wow. Okay, yeah, okay, okay, I was okay. Like, I think it was Prop Joe. I mean, for one, when we think about the first moment we saw Prop, Prop Joe, which I believe was a basketball game, was the, the infamous mm-hmm. East Side, West Side basketball game. From that yeah on it's been a steady climb for prop joe as really establishing himself not just as a force in the drug business but being truly the voice of reason but he's also an operative like prop joe for as many uh as much as stringer bell likes to believe that he's some kind of evil genius prop joe uh really sees a lot of different angles yeah, he's 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 who Stringer wants to be. He is. I mean, or who's, yeah. he's definitely who Stringer should aspire to be. And he's right. also, despite the fact that he is, you know, technically a rival for some people, and despite the nature of the business that he's in, he's a facilitator. And it's right. hard to be both. He is both mm-hmm. ruthless businessman, but also a facilitator. When you want to, when opposing sides want shit to be settled, like he's a mediator, an right. arbitrator. In addition to being uh, a, a key accomplice, and that is right. a brilliant role that he has. But also, I'll always make sure though that in mediating these things, he gets something out of it. He does always get something out of it, even when he's talking. We'll talk about this later. Like if he does something for you once, he might do it for you once on the strength. But the next time, he reminds you of the first time that he did it to get your trust, to get what he really wants. So, like, he he always knows how to play it in his advantage. Yeah, I mean, and just think about how remarkable that is in, in this world that Omar, Prop Joe, 
I mean, Omar Stringer and Avon all trust this dude. Yep. All three There's of them. There's only one guy that it's not going to work on. Yes. That is 100% true. Oh, God. I'm just already getting <laughs> mad <laughs> thinking about it. Just thinking about it. Don't get me angry, man. Don't get me angry. Right. Too soon. Uh, all right. That's going to do it for us. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed our breakdown of Stray Rounds. Uh, as always, keep watching The Wire and keep listening to us. We will see y'all next time. <laughs>